that word, which is a light into our path, we turn to now. And we turn to a passage that has actually been kind of controversial in the history of the church. It's a passage you perhaps are familiar with. It's from the letter of James. And unlike most, most of James, James has, you know, kind of these short verses that deal with one subject and then go to another one and another one and another one. It kind of jumps around a little bit. Unlike that, we have in chapter 2 a rather long and extended treatment about faith and faith in a particular context. Actually, although we're beginning at verse 14, we're really beginning halfway. If you've turned to James chapter 2, page 1722, uh, you'll see in 2.1 uh, another heading that we'll come back to in a minute, and I would encourage you... Uh, sometime in the next couple of days to look at chapter 2, 1 to 13 that leads up to the passage that we'll be talking about this evening. Draw your attention also to the outline of the message, which is found in our evening order of worship. So James chapter 2, beginning then at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if somebody claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Well, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Do you believe that there is one God? Good, but even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, quote, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You See then that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If Martin Luther, the great reformer, were worshiping with us this evening, I'm afraid he would not be very happy with me. And the reason Martin Luther would not be happy with me is not because I teach at a building that has the name of another reformer on top of its main door. No. The reason, <coughs> excuse me, that Luther would be unhappy with me is because of my scripture selection tonight. 
You see, James did not like the letter of, sorry, Luther didn't like the letter of James. Many of us know the story of Luther, how he kind of was struggling with a works righteousness mentality. He was working hard to do all these things and nothing was really working for him. And then there was a dramatic moment in his life where the spirit was at work and, and certain texts came to him in a new and fresh way. And, and so he had this, this gospel message that he embraced, right? Salvation by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And, and, and Luther had that in his mind, of course. And when he looked at James, he, he says, I, I, don't, I don't see that gospel message here. And, and that's why he called it a letter of straw, right? It was a theologically lightweight, wimpy letter. It lacked the substance and the depth of the gospel. He wondered whether it should even be in the Bible. Well, if Luther didn't like James as a whole, there was one passage within James he even liked less. And that's why I also would have been in trouble with him because it's the text we're looking at tonight here in chapter 2, 14 to 26. Because Luther thought not only did this passage lack the gospel, it went even worse than that. It somehow contradicted the gospel, or at least it contradicted words of Paul that he found contained the gospel. In fact, Luther was so sure that James here contradicted Paul. He said, um, if anybody can show how they're not in conflict with each other, he said, I'll take off my professor's hat because professors wore this cap. He said, I'll take off my professor's hat, give it to this other person, and let that person call me a fool. Well, I already have a professor's hat. I don't need another one. But I do want to kind of in a metaphorical way take Luther's hat, maybe don't call him a fool, but more importantly, show tonight, not just to him if he were here, but especially to you who are here, that uh, James is not contradicting Paul. Yes, he uses words that may sound at first blush a little different than what the apostle says, but James addressing a very specific different situation that Paul is, is talking about a certain kind of faith. In the words of our sermon title, a saving faith. A saving faith that automatically, naturally, spontaneously, shows itself in what it does, especially in this context, in concrete acts of kindness and mercy toward those who are hurting and in need. Now, if you have that outline in front of you, you can see that after the introduction, it says historical context of James' argument. Perhaps that you are familiar with that principle of Scripture that every passage has to be looked at in its context, yeah. Because, you know, James isn't just sitting in an office as if he had one with his feet up high and says, what should I write about? I think I'll write about faith. No, no, no. Just like every other passage of the New Testament, especially letters, it's responding to a very specific situation. And James, almost certainly the brother of Jesus, 
James, who seemingly was in a leadership position among Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and in Judea, is looking over the churches under his control and he sees a problem. An embarrassing problem, a, a serious problem. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, you have to go to the back of uh, earlier to chapter 2, verse 1, and you see a little hint of it there in the heading. Of course, those headings were added, but it says in my Bible, favoritism. Maybe instead of favoritism, I could use a, 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 another word, discrimination. We hear a bit about discrimination nowadays. We hear a lot about Gender discrimination, that's not what's going on over here. We hear a, a lot about ethnic discrimination, that's not what's going on over here. What is going on in James is, we could call it social discrimination, favoritism. The church is showing favoritism toward the wealthy at the expense of the poor. We're going to see that when they had worship services, as they did, and when a rich person came in with fine jewelry, we would call that bling in today's term, they get all excited like, wow, we're so glad you're here. Welcome, welcome. Please, we have a spot right up here in the front for you. So happy to see you. And yet at those same gatherings when somebody without the jewelry, without the fancy clothes, without the bling comes in, it'd be like, um... Hi, uh, would you mind just sitting in the back? You know, we have some other people coming in that we're reserving these privileged spots for. And when there was conflict in these churches and when they did what they were supposed to do, not go to the secular courts and deal with it there. No, they dealt with it in-house like they should. And, and, and even though all the evidence sided with the poor, the leadership's, in their judgment, sided with the rich, yes. And so there was a serious problem of discrimination at work in this early Christian Jewish community. And it was a serious problem, especially we remember the summary of the law. I'm sure we do. Not only to love God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, but also to love our, our neighbor, yeah. And when you're showing that kind of favoritism toward the wealthy instead of the less wealthy, you're, you're not really loving your neighbor. You're fundamentally failing to obey God's law. So this is the problem that James is looking at, and he uses words that I guess at first blush sound like they're at odds with Paul. We're probably more familiar with the problem that Paul addresses, right? We overstate that problem, though, I must say. I mean, it was true in Galatians. It was probably true a little bit in Romans and maybe a little bit in Ephesians, but we sometimes overstate the case, probably because of the Reformation. Paul was dealing with, well, we called it legalism or works righteousness, you know, people who thought that they could score enough points with God if they would just do enough good deeds and in that context, quite a bit different than James, Paul came along and said, no, uh, salvation by grace, <laughs> undeserved, through faith in Christ Jesus. But if you get Paul away from that conflict, he says things that are very similar to James. You, you probably, well, maybe not, I'm sure you 
pay rapt attention to everything in the worship service. I picked the call to worship, and it came from, where did it come from? Galatians, written by Paul, right? And actually in Galatians where he seemingly is addressing head-on a problem of legalism, works righteousness. And even in this letter, right, once he gets out of that context, he says, you know, circumcision and uncircumcision, I know you guys are fighting about all of that, right, because some of you are really concerned. But he says none of that really matters. What matters is, you can see it in the order of worship, is faith. Faith, did you hear? Same thing, right? Working itself out in love. Did you hear that verb in there? Working itself. So, so Paul, too, has the idea of a faith that shows itself, right, that demonstrates itself in, in acts of love, in specific acts of kindness and mercy. But let's not get hung up on Paul. Let's get back to James. And let's remind ourselves of this, uh, this uh, embarrassing problem of discrimination among brothers and sisters in Christ, this favoritism toward the well-to-do at the expense of the poor. And, 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 and what does Pastor James do to kind of solve this problem? Well, what he does in this passage is uh, probably something different than what well, a lot of preachers and maybe a good number of scholars suggest. A lot of preachers and a lot of scholars say what's going on in this passage is, is there's a contrast, right? A contrast between faith and works or faith and deeds. And, and, and James is saying something about these two things, and he's coming out very much on the side of deeds or works. But I suggest to you that's a wrong way to begin. And once you begin the wrong way, you often, well, it's almost impossible to end the right way. Yes, there is a contrast. Yes, there is a, a, a comparison in our passage throughout the whole text. And it's a little bit different. James is contrasting faith with, are you ready? Faith. Or, wait a minute, more precisely, he's contrasting one kind of faith with another kind of faith. He's contrasting in the first half of our passage a, a negative faith. He, he, he gives examples, and in every case, they're bad examples. In fact, he explicitly says at the beginning, can this kind of faith save? And in Greek, you know, Greek is an interesting language. He asked a loaded question in which you can tell. He says, no, it can't. All right, so everything in the first half is like a non-saving faith. And then, of course, he doesn't want to end on the negative. He shifts in the second half to the positive. He says, let me give you another kind of faith, the kind of faith that is a saving faith. So one of the first things we have to do is think about this passage is contrasting faith with faith, a, a false faith with a true faith, a non-saving faith with a sermon title, Saving Faith. Well, you can see in the outline, and it's following the text. I better stand over here because this is the, no reflection on people on this side of the room. But visually, we're on the non-saving side of things. What, what, what might a non-saving or a false faith look like? Well, the first example comes right out of the church's situation. 
We read about it there in verses uh, 15 and 16. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. Okay, so this is not a hypothetical. There are, in our Jewish Christian churches, in Jerusalem and Judea, there are Jesus followers, male and female ones, who, uh, well, who are in trouble. They don't have enough clothes. They don't have enough food. And you're seeing them, and then what do you do? You say, go in peace. Right? Keep warm and well fed. But you don't do anything about their physical needs. And James says, what good is it? By the way, you should know in Greek, when everyone says, what good is it? The answer is always nothing, not a squat. Okay, right? So if you want to give a little catchy name to the first illustration of what a false faith is, you could write down, a faith that's all talk and no action, right? A faith that's all talk and no action. Now, if you're like me, you would say, I would never do that. And I've thought about this more, and I'm afraid, I'm, I'm afraid you would. <laughs> I mean, haven't you had this experience? I've had this. So I'll see a student or I'll see somebody, especially at the seminary, I'll say, hey, Fred or something, how how you doing? Right? And then they catch me off guard. They start telling me they're not doing well at all. And I'm listening, and inside I'm going, Woo, I wasn't expecting to get into this. I was just saying hi, you know, and now suddenly I'm hearing, right, okay. And I'm looking at my watch, you know, because I've got other things to do and to go. And I don't want to look like I'm uncaring or unsympathetic. That would look terrible, right? And so. I'm listening and listening, and what do we do? I, I, I reach into my pocket for one of those, well, just like James says, one of these cliches. I mean, that's a Jewish cliche, you know, go in peace, <laughs> be warm and well-fed, right? Okay. We have a different cliche, right? Today we would say, um, I'll pray for you. And you're like, whew, <laughs> I got out of that one, right? And then, of course, you're back to your own life and your own concerns, and, and you don't really Actually, that sounds pretty cliche, so I, I have another one that is a cliche, but doesn't sound so cliche, so it doesn't look so obvious, right? I, I reach in my pocket, and I'll say something like, um, God will provide for you in your time of need. Doesn't that sound good? Yeah, right, okay, yeah, right. Of course, it's blind to me that maybe God will provide for them in their time of need by me innocently asking the question and suddenly hearing about their situation, right? Anyway, uh, James has a value judgment. When you see somebody, anybody, but of course, especially a brother or sister in need, and they tell you about their need, and then you do one of these pious cliches, and James says, uh, guess what? Eh, okay, right? It's no good at all. I mean, that's what the paragraph ends, right? He says, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. That doesn't sound very positive or good at all. Now, maybe, again, you're more sanctified than I am, but I have a sneaky suspicion that a faith that's all talk and no actions probably happens with some frequency among God's people. Well, James has another example. There are some problems with this second example. We don't need to go into all of that, but 
But it's kind of an interesting example. It's found there beginning in uh, verse 18, and then it goes on to 19, right? But someone will say, da-da-da-da-da-da. Anyway, then James says, um, you believe there is one God. Now, let's stop for a minute. Remember who he's talking to. He's not talking to people like you, Gentiles. He's talking to Jewish Christians. Yeah, Jewish Christians who, from the time they were this small, were saying Hebrew, Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Okay, right? So, I mean, he's, he, James comes to them and says, do you believe that God is one? And they would say, yeah, of course we do, right? And, and it's almost like James goes, you know, whoopee-ding-dong. Big deal. He says, even the demons can say that. And they, it's not, it's not a very good translation. Shudder is just something like that. Actually, a better translation is they freak out. I mean, if you had to give a name, a more catchy or simplistic name to the second example, this would be a faith that's, that's what? That's all maybe knowledge and no action. A faith that's all knowledge and no action. Now, of course, knowledge is good. It's important to know that God is one. <laughs> and it's important to, uh, to grow in the knowledge of God as he reveals it in the scriptures. And, you know, it's important to be able to cite a confession like we did earlier in the service, like the Heidelberg Catechism. Those are all good things. But apparently you can be quite knowledgeable about the faith and yet at the same time not actually demonstrate saving faith, right? Apparently, good warning for me, right, egghead person, good, good warning for some of us, you know, knowledgeable Jesus followers who know quite a bit about the Bible and theology and stuff. It, it isn't enough, as important as it is to have right doctrine and knowledge, it isn't enough to be all knowledge and, and no action. Well, after some negative stuff, not surprisingly, and thankfully, James moves on to some positive examples. And, and uh, not surprisingly, both examples come from the Old Testament. No surprise at all. Remember, he's writing not to people like you. He's writing to Jewish Christians, right, who know the Bible pretty well, uh, I think better than we do. And, and so... James can just kind of throw out there some stories, and he assumes that they know the backstory behind these stories. I mean, every good Jew knows about Father Abraham, and every good Jew even knows about sister, unusual background Rahab, right? I can't assume, though, that you know all the story because, I don't know, I don't know what your background is, so maybe i got to make sure that if you hear these two positive examples, you, you know what James assumes his audience would know. I mean, do we remember that before Abraham was called Abraham, he was called plain old Abraham, that's right, and, and how God kind of, well, God took him, right, and said, Abraham, sorry, Abram, <laughs> uh, check out the stars in the sky, check out the sand and the seashore. That's how many your descendants will be. I mean, I have, uh, I got eight grandchildren, you know, and I'm too proud of that. Can you imagine, like, 
you know, sand and stars. I mean, that sounds kind of a, In fact, you're going to have so many descendants, we're going to have to change your name. Abraham, the father of a nation, the father of a whole people. Whoa, that sounds pretty good. And, and even though I don't really know this God, and I don't know where this God is leading me by faith, apparently, I, I'm going to follow this God to an unknown land and... Uh, I'm waiting, God, okay? I'm waiting for you to fulfill that promise, and I'm waiting, and uh, I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. I'm getting older, and I'm waiting. I mean, you know all of this, right? Of course. James assumes you do, right? And then uh, we're not quite sure about all this, how this worked, whether it was really his wife's idea, but she seemed to encourage somehow that maybe you should sleep with my uh, slave, right? And maybe that... No, that didn't work out too well either, okay, and we're still waiting, and finally, Abraham is 99. You knew that already, right? Yeah. And God says, it's time. Ha, 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 good one. <laughs> that's what Abraham did. He laughed. I mean, that, come on, that's stupid talk. And then, of course, Sarah was 89, and God said to her, it's time, and she went, ha, 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 good one. That's stupid talk. But she did get pregnant. And she had a baby. And we have to call him Isaac, which of course means laughter. I mean, what else can we call him, right, in light of what all happened? I mean, wow, what joy. I mean, every child, of course, brings joy. I mean, how much more a child of old age and how much more a child on whom a whole future nation's destiny is is resting. But there's more to the backstory, right? I mean, it's only alluded to quickly over here, right? But if you go to the Old Testament, you'll read about it. I'm choosing my words very carefully, exactly what we read over there. God comes to him one day and says, Abraham, take your son, your one and only son, the one whom you love. I mean, how many sons do I have, God? Okay? Okay? Just a accentuate the situation, yes, and, and take him to the mountain of Moriah and offer him as a, I mean, come on, come on, how can that be? I mean, biblical scholars and even Jewish scholars, right, a lot of, Jew, I mean, this is part of their Bible, right, Jewish scholars have been debating this for like centuries, the binding of Isaac, how can this be? I mean, what does it say about God, what does it say about Abraham, <laughs> And the details of the story are even more painful, right? I mean, Isaac's maybe enjoying this little uh, camping trip with Dad, you know, and uh, but he finally realized, like, Dad, we got, you know, this, that. We got everything for the sacrifice except for the sacrifice, right? Boy, how are you going to answer that one, Abraham? We really can't understand some of you know that my wife and I have lost a child to crib death, you know, and maybe, you know, that's not the same even, but, you know, somehow the loss, the sting that comes from the death of a child, you know, gives you, well, it makes it even harder to even maybe understand. I mean, whew. But this is the story that James reminds his readers of, and we can see it in the story. The hand goes up, and, well, you know the backstory, and God said, Stop. <laughs> And James kind of says, did you don't miss it. That, that's it. That's faith right over there, right? And, oh, and don't think for a minute it was only this one time when Abraham had true faith. 
you did catch that when I read that there, right, in verse 22. You see that his faith and his actions, plural, actions, plural, right? Not just this one thing, but apparently other times in Abraham's life, his actions and his faith were were working hand in glove, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And then the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham was believed in God and was credited to him as righteousness. That's a saving faith, a faith that, I guess, shows itself in concrete acts of here, obedience. And then James just kind of throws out there, again, not at all explaining it, assuming that his audience knows, he throws in there Rahab. Now, some people have wondered, you know, why Rahab? I mean, Abraham's a no-brainer. I know why James picked him. I mean, he literally is the father of the Jewish people. You can't get any higher in Jewish hierarchy than father Abraham. Yes, okay, but I mean, according to the writer of Hebrews, there are all kinds of other people of faith from the Old Testament. why, Why pick Rahab? And I think the answer, I'm pretty confident about this answer, and and so confident I'm going to share it with you. I think it's because it shows two extremes. This is actually a Jewish way of speaking where you pick two extremes. Why? In order to describe the whole. So in Psalms, you'll hear about heaven and earth, or you'll read in one line about the morning and the next line the night, and and you're not supposed to say the afternoon doesn't count. I mean, everything in be. A little bit in English we have that. You go buy a car and you're wondering about the warranty and then the salesman might say, oh, it has a bumper to I mean, everything in between, two extremes. And uh, so who is Rahab? I mean, well, she's about as opposite of Abraham as you can get. First of all, she wasn't a Jew. She wasn't even a, a part of God's covenant people. You may have heard that male Jews apparently prayed, you know, the same prayers regularly. The first thing they prayed was, Lord, thank you for not making me a Gentile. She was a Gentile. Not only was she a Gentile, she was a woman in a patriarchal culture of that day, right? The second thing that male Jews seemingly prayed, according to the text, were, Lord, thank you for not making me a woman because, you know, they didn't have access to the teaching of the law and some other privileges. So she, she was a woman. And the text is pretty clear. She wasn't any old woman. She was a prostitute. I mean, you can't really get any worse than a Gentile female prostitute unless you also give her leprosy, right? I mean, that's, that's the only thing you could maybe do to make things work. And so it doesn't matter whether you're the great hero of the faith, Abraham, or whether you're the female or the Gentile female prostitute, Rahab. All of us are called upon to have what kind of faith? Well, a a faith that shows itself in our actions, right? A kind of working faith to pick up the language of, of Paul. A faith that shows itself in specific acts of obedience or in this context, kindness. So in other words, it doesn't matter whether you're an egghead professor from Calvin Theological Seminary doesn't matter whether you're a charter member of this church. 
It doesn't matter if in the world's eyes you have a certain amount of stature or influence or whether, again, in the world's eyes you think of yourself as a nobody or just, you know, a, a pew-sitter that, that, you know, someone who's not so significant. The call is the same for all of us. And that is not to have a faith that's all talk and no actions, not to have a faith that's all knowledge and no actions, but to have a kind of living, active, obedient, grace-filled faith that shows itself in what we do. Now, Luther did not like James, and he didn't like this passage, but I like this passage. In fact, so much so I chose to preach on it tonight. Why? Because I think it's especially relevant for at least the, the part of the church that I see today. What part of the church do I see today? Well, it's a different church than uh, the church I saw in my grandparents' lives. Let me tell you about my grandparents' My grandparents were simple people. They were not well-educated. They were farmers in the Netherlands. So, you know, they were not particularly scholarly or knowledgeable, but they had a faith that throughout their life was pretty clearly evident in all that they did. I mean, during the Second World War, they hid a Jewish boy for almost two years. I hope you appreciate how dangerous that way. They could have easily come up with an excuse like, I would like to help out, you know, but, you know, I, I don't want to jeopardize my life or the life of my family. You know, what are the consequences? You know, sorry, I, I, I can't do that. They immigrated to Canada after the war, and they were a little unusual. They had older kids. Most of the immigrants after the Second World War to Canada, they couldn't come to the States unless they had some relatives who would sponsor them. So that's why after the Second World War, most of those immigrants came to Canada and, um, and they were younger. And so you have to imagine um, these young families coming over, and, and they had nothing. And uh, I met a number of people later in life who knew my grandparents. These are my, my mother's parents, so that you can't tell from the last name that these were my grandparents, okay? But we played Dutch bingo a lot in Canada, especially, you know, in that generation, because, you know, everybody kind of knows everyone. And and so, you know, they, they're kind of curious. And so it came out on more than one occasion that I was a grandchild of uh, Herit and Klaska de Skiffer. People, you know? And uh, sometimes they would tell me about my grandparents, how they lent them farm machinery or money in order just to kind of get by. That was kind of important and significant. Even more powerful were women who, who talked about how my grandmother, remember she's a little older, how she was like a, like a counselor, a mother. I mean, these poor immigrant moms. I mean, they, they were ripped away from family, and, and they thought they'd never see one again. They were living a poor existence. Often Canadians, farmers would take advantage of them. I like, think they were a dumb, cheap labor, and, and they would pour out their soul to my grandmother, and she had to kind of comfort them and encourage them. And um, I was close to my grandparents, and uh, always had a good relationship with them. And then as I served as an interim pastor during my Ph.D., I would, you know, have them visit us, and they would stay overnight for a couple of nights. And, uh, you know, I, I, I could hear them at nighttime, you know, praying out loud, you know, in Frisian, because they were from Friesland. 
So I see in my grandparents, you know, someone who isn't very, you know, gifted in terms of speaking about their faith. It's good to speak about our faith, right? I mean, it would be nice if we could do a better job doing that, right? They, 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 they weren't very good at that. But boy, I mean, you know, their true faith kind of shone, you know, very clearly in what they did. And that seems a sharp contrast to what I see in the church today. I've served a couple of terms as elders, and that means I go to people's houses and I start asking about, you know, how are things going, you know, and what about your faith life and your devotional life, and how do you integrate your Christian faith with your job, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, people who aren't bad in talking in general suddenly give answers, you know, that aren't so encouraging. And so it seems to me that the church today, who's pretty good at talking a good game, talking a good faith, needs to be reminded about James, which talks about living a good faith. Because, you know, your faith in Jesus has impact in your lives. I would dare say in everything you do. I can start listing things like, how much and how willingly you, you give to support the ministry of this church and denomination. I could, you know, the kind of movies you watch on Netflix or Hulu or whatever other streaming service you have. The way you refer to members of the opposite sex, you know, whether you use appropriate language or not. How much time you spend in God's Word. How much time you spend talking with God in prayer. I mean, I can go on and on and on, but you see, brothers and sisters, faith, not a false faith, but a saving faith, is something that's going to be shining brightly in every area of your life. And so may God give you power through the Holy Spirit to live that kind of faith, or maybe better to say, to demonstrate that kind of faith in your home life, in your work life, in your school life, no matter who you are with, no matter where you find yourself. May that kind of saving faith be really obvious in you. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word, which we sang is a lamp, which is a guide for our path. And so you have shone the way that we are to go in your word. And we pray that the same spirit that spoke through James years ago will now be working in our hearts so we may hear and heed your word. We pray that our relationship with Jesus, your Son and our Savior, may be strong and intimate and sweet and that our relationship with Jesus will, will be evident in the way that grace changes and transforms every area of our life, as we more and more die to our old sinful self, as we more and more are born again to that new holy creature 
that you've called us to be. Encourage us as we see and give evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in every area of our lives. We ask this in the name of Jesus and through the power of his Spirit. Amen.